Thank you, Brother Tony. Thank you so much for the invitation, for the opportunity to come and to worship with you this evening, to have the honor to share with you from God's Word. My assignment is to present a lesson entitled, Saying Better Words. The text was just read, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. When Brother Tony uh, contacted me about coming and, and, and speaking, he gave me three options. And I told him that why don't you just get back with the other speakers that you are hoping to arrange to come, and I'll take whatever is left. I didn't tell Tony that Colossians 4 and verse 6 was my preference, but it was. And I got it. So I guess the last shall be first. I like this passage of Scripture. It is so rich and powerful. If there was ever a time in our history when civility in speech and the expression of ideas is so woefully lacking in politeness and in honesty and in sincerity, I don't know when it ever occurred. I don't think there's ever been a time when it is as bad as it is right now. I've read great speeches and debates not just from American history. I consider myself to be a, a student of history. And I've read great debates from centuries past in just about every Western civilization and even in some of the Eastern civilizations. And you know, while they used strong words and they stood firm on the beliefs that they held on any matter of thing. When you read through those great speeches, you find a civility and a respect for the opposing views. This simply isn't the case today, is it? You see, we live in a 24-hour news cycle. A sound bite. A social media driven world. And it, and it seems that the more rabid, the more red meat a statement is, the more caustic that it is framed, the more attention it gets. And even approval. I'm not simply referring to the secular world, however. Like most things in the world, it has a way of finding its way into the body of Christ. And I have found and experienced, and I'm sure that you have, such language in the Lord's church. And this is what we're here to address tonight, and we will have more to say about that in just a moment. But you see, God knew 
God knew that human beings would have challenges when it came to speech. Or how it's typically phrased in Scripture with our tongue. James, the Lord's brother, connected the words that we choose with the nature of our religion. In James chapter 1 and verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and this one's religion is useless. God puts a lot of weight on the words that we use. If you turn over to James chapter 3, there James starts by issuing a warning for teachers and says, you face a greater or a stricter judgment. But then he He makes the obvious statement, for we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires." Even so, the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. James really captures the challenge that we humans have with the tongue. Some scholars suggest and have even coined the expression that James is the New Testament Proverbs for the style in which it is presented. And sometimes you have just really quaint, basic, practical statements. But it is Proverbs where we find a wealth of information and really about the tongue that really does not need any commentary or editorializing upon it because the statements speak for themselves. And we've all heard many of them. And we've all probably nodded in agreement when we've heard them, both on how to speak and and what not to speak or not or how not to use our tongue. For example, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Proverbs 10 and verse 11. Also in chapter 10, beginning in verse 18. Whoever hides hatred with lying lips and whoever spreads slander is a fool in the multitude of words. And sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous, listen to this, is choice silver. The heart of a work of a wicked one is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many. But fools die 
of lack of wisdom. And then over in chapter 12 and verse 13, a tale-bearer reveals secrets that he who is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. In chapter 13 and verse 3, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Chapter 15 and verse 1 perhaps is the most familiar. And I know on my part, I have not always applied it. But a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And also in the 15th chapter, in verse 4, a wholesome tongue is the tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A man has joy by the answers of his mouth and a word spoken in due season. How good it is. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 23. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, but they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs 18 and verse 21. And on and on we could go. Because Proverbs is rich in providing for us common sense, practical things that we can apply as we, as Christians, need to guard our tongue because we want our Christianity, our religion, to be genuine, don't we? We want it to be real. I see in the list of topics where one speaker has already spoke about the nature of our lifestyle. Colossians chapter 3 was the text given how we ought to conduct ourselves as Christians. When I was in the school of preaching, I learned that there are two components to evangelism. The first component is affirmation evangelism. And that speaks to the lifestyle that we convey. The preaching, you will, of our lives. Can somebody look at you and say, there goes a Christian gentleman or a Christian lady. There goes someone who is exhibiting Christ in their lives. It's so important. It's so essential. And it is a blessing or a curse to you and to the church that you worship at. For example... That so-and-so goes down to the Bobby Branch Church. Well, I've seen him out there. I can't believe he's a Christian. You see how important our conduct is? Well, our speech is part of our conduct. And so we either affirm or we deny Christ by the things that we do. And we know that aspect of affirmation Evangelism is important because if I live my life recklessly, if I do not present Christ in the things that I do, the moment I bring up Christ in my conversation, no one's going to be interested. 
Or if they find out that you go to such and such place to worship, it really makes Brother Tony's job more difficult. Well, I would never go to a church where that person's a member. Our lifestyle is important. But we must also be able to speak about Christ. And we're in a much better place to do it if our life reflects Him. If we are Christ-like in our character. That is spoken of as proclamation evangelism. And I really do believe that that is at the heart of what the apostle is writing about here in Colossians chapter 3, or chapter 4. The key word in this context is not in the verse 6, but I believe that it is in verse 5. When he says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, or as the King James Bible puts it, I'm reading from the New King James, without. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of people who are not members of the church. People who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who have not been immersed for the remission of their sins. That's what we want to see happen. That's what we are left here to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's what we're here for. We do that by the life that we live and the conversation that we have. These two things must be in harmony. But we must also know how to speak about Christ. That is so very, very important. Before we look in detail at verse 6, I want us to appreciate the context of the letter that Paul writes to these Christians in Colossae. He's emphasizing the preeminence of Christ. If you turn back to chapter 1 and read verse 18, he says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, or that in all things, he may have the preeminence. Christ is to be preeminent in everything. He's to be in preeminent in our lives. Chapter 3. But he is to be preeminent in our speech as well. In the things that we talk about. I use the Atlanta Braves. I see a young man back there that is going through the season as woefully as I am. Got the worst record in baseball. Maybe they will do another from worst to first next year. I love to talk baseball, and I love to talk about the Atlanta Braves. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've not been reading the box scores as much this year because there's not a whole lot to read. But back in the day, 
Boy, I could carry on a conversation about the Braves. Why? Because I liked them, and I enjoyed reading about them, and I knew something about them. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If we're not talking a lot about Jesus, it's because we probably don't know that much about him. He ought to dominate our conversation. He ought to be what we talk about more than anything else. And He will be if we're connected to Him. He will be if we know Him. And we truly are connected with Him. He should have preeminence in every aspect of our lives. He has preeminence in all things. Is what the Apostle Paul declares. And he's declaring this. In the midst of a world gone crazy, Paul deals with the man-made philosophies and the twisted religions, traditions of men in chapter 2. Picking up at verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul writes, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, we live in a world just like Paul is describing in Colossians. We live in a world that it's a smorgasbord of whatever you want. And we have some folks in the church who's even suggesting that it's a pick and choose and forget everything else. But when we do that, Christ does not hold preeminence, not in our lives and not in any church that would choose to practice that kind of Christianity. And so we see how practical what Paul is writing here wasn't just for the Colossians in the first century, but is for us today right here in Middle Tennessee. He wants them to understand one thing. Beyond the preeminence of Christ, and that benefit that He has preeminence is for them. If you go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 27, Paul writes there and declares... To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I believe that there's two ways to see that. First of all, he's suggesting that it was necessary that the riches of the glory of the mystery be made known to the Gentiles, but he, he, he underscores that by saying, which is Christ in you. He's talking to Colossian Christians, and he's saying that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what they have to see and what they have to hear from you. That's how important it is. And as we've already observed, he says in chapter 3 that those who have put on Christ should seek after heavenly things. And then he proceeds to present wonderful, practical, inspired instructions on how to achieve 
that heavenly mindset. And then he comes to chapter 4. And he's wrapping it up. He's, he's bringing it to a conclusion. And so he starts the chapter by saying, in chapter 4, he says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in all with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, opening also for us, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the world to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may be able, that you may know how you ought to answer each other or each one. So, he encourages prayer. Pray. Continue in prayer. Let me tell you something about prayer. And my wife's used to being used as an illustration and an example. Anytime I've had a disagreement with my wife and I've started it off with prayer, it usually ends pretty good. But if I take prayer out and I take God out, it usually ends up pretty bad. It's very difficult. Who in one moment be praying to the Almighty and then in the other moment trashing one of His people. Destroying them by the words that we choose. Hurting by the statements we make. So there's a great relationship between prayer and our speech. But Paul didn't stop there with regards to just simply asking them to, reminding them to pray, he asked for a specific thing with regards to him. And look at it. Verse 4. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul is calling on them to pray for him so that he can say the right thing. Well, Paul, you're inspired. Paul, you're, you're, you're a learned man. You're a man of God. Pray for me. Pray for Tony when he is preaching and teaching. Pray for all the teachers. Pray for anyone and everyone. Pray for yourselves. Because you must speak the truth. You must communicate Christ to others. That is what you are here for. But then he goes to that great passage. Let your speech be seasoned always with grace, seasoned with salt. You know, grace can be used in two different ways. Obviously, we can talk about grace as that which we have from God that we do not deserve. Unmerited favor. But, but it also speaks to a 
way in which we conduct ourselves. It also speaks to the way in which we speak. But I would suggest to you that in this context, in this passage, when he's encouraging them in their dealings with people who are not members of the church, he says, let your speech always be with grace. Someone has observed that he could be suggesting speak of God's grace in a gracious manner. Is there any other way that you can talk about God's grace than a gracious manner? Well, what does that mean? I think we all know the difference between being gracious and ungracious in our speech. And so you can, you can take everything that's tied up into that expression, gracious speech, and know when you are speaking that way and when you're not. And if you don't know the difference, then seek out help. Because this is not a suggestion. Paul is not saying here, if you choose to speak, let your speech be with grace. No, it's an expectation. This is an explicit statement. This is, if you will, a direct command. Let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned with salt. Salt provides two things. It, it provides flavor and it preserves. And we're very familiar with what Jesus had to say about conduct in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the salt of the world, are the salt of the world. Do what? Be a seasoned person. Bring flavor to a tasteless world. What did he say about salt that has lost its flavor? It's good for nothing. The only thing it's good for is to be thrown out and trampled under feet. They would, they would put salt on pathways that had lost its flavor to absorb moisture. We know that occasionally, don't we? When we put salt on the roadways during icy and cold weather. Our lives, our conduct, as well as our speech, need to be of a preserving nature and of a nature that brings flavor, godly favor, righteous favor, reflecting Christ by the things that we say and how we say them. There's a big difference between having your speech seasoned with salt and using salty language. And I think we know the difference, don't we? We're pretty mature people, most of us. And we know the difference. He goes on that you may know how you ought to answer each other. 
or each one. I keep wanting to say each other because, but this is not one of those one another passages. Typically, one another passages is, is Christian, Christian. This is each one, which each one that you come into contact with who's on the outside. Those who are not yet members of the church, those who have not obeyed the gospel that you come into contact with, each one, you need to be certain that your speech is with grace, seasoned with salt, and that you know how to answer that particular person. You don't talk to everybody the same way. I raised two daughters, completely different. We talk about that all the time now since they both left home. Our oldest daughter had a, a baby recently. She's 18 months old now, I guess a little more than recently. Our oldest daughter, you could set her down right there when she was one years old and she wouldn't try to climb down. She would stay put. The second one came along and we had to put a leash on her. Our oldest daughter has a little baby girl that looks just like her when she was a baby and acts just like her sister. <laughs> I have my sister's baby, she says, and she really does. I learned a long time ago that I have to talk with one differently than I had to the other. I just had to look at the oldest one like I was about to wear her out and tears would well up in her eyes. I could spank the other one, wear her out, and she'd look up at me and say, is that all you got? <laughs> Difference. And we need to know how to respond to each one in the way that better communicates what we want to communicate, which is Christ is the preeminent one and that he is your only hope for glory. Jude gives us a hint in his epistle on how to contend earnestly for the faith. He says, with some folks, you've got to jerk them out of the fire. Again, speaking to the fact that we know how we interact with people differently. But the underscoring nature of all of our speech is right here, seasoned with salt, with grace. Or as Paul puts it to the Ephesians in chapter 4 in verse 15, speak the truth in love. You know why that's so important? Because if you're talking to somebody who's not a member of the church, who have been brought up by, with some man-made philosophy or a tradition of men, and when they come face to face with truth, it is unsettling. It causes them great pain. I've seen it in people. It is troubling. And I don't need to make it all the more painful and troubling by how I choose to tell them the truth. I need to do it with love. And they need to know 
that it's coming from someone who loves them. That is so important. Well, Jesus sort of got on to a bunch of people and he spoke pretty harshly. I mean, have you read Matthew chapter 23 lately? Yeah, but you know who Jesus reserved his harshest criticisms toward? The people on the inside. He was was criticizing the religious leaders. He was calling them fools and hypocrites and blind guides because that was exactly what they were and they knew better. But you can't find a conversation that he had with people on the outside. And one thing you can be certain, even when Jesus was speaking in strong words to those scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he was doing it with a heart filled with love. In fact, he was doing it with a broken heart. Because if you turn over there and you read toward the end of that that just heartbreaking and, and sad speech that Jesus declares, He gets to the end and He says in verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your, chicken, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You can't walk away from that speech thinking that he did it without love. But it was with the people on the inside. We live in a time and an age where we are being confronted with things that I know most of us never thought that we would ever be confronted with. One occurred last summer with the Supreme Court ruling with regards to same-sex marriages. The Bible condemns it. Not only the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, we're not under the old law, but you can't read Romans chapter 1 and not see that it is an abomination to the Lord. But I want to say this, and I don't, I I want you to understand based on everything that we said tonight. And anybody who knows me knows how strongly I feel about the sin of homosexuality. But I have heard some of the harshest, meanest, some of the, the, the just the worst comments come from my brethren about homosexuals. And it usually begins with, well, we, we, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. And then when they get finished saying, you, you don't know if they don't hate the sinner because it certainly sounds like it. Shouldn't we be as disgusted with multiple marriages that are unscriptural as we are with homosexuality? And yet we almost accept that today. Both are an abomination to God. Absolutely, we need to stand for the truth, but let's convey the truth in love. Let's not be 
a proclaimer of red meat diatribe. But let's choose our words carefully so that when we finish and we walk away, someone might say, well, I disagree with everything that he said. But he spoke it in a kind and loving way. Are you a member of the church tonight? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Perhaps you have heard sermon after sermon after sermon on what one must do to be saved, and you haven't done it. And, and I wish that I could add something that you have never heard before. And I can, and I don't intend to be cruel and harsh to say that if you don't obey the gospel, then you put your life out there for so much heartache. But you see, you have a loving God who gave His only begotten Son. And all you have to do is obey the gospel to have your sins washed away, to be raised up, to walk in a new way, a new life. You're not going to get to heaven by saying a prayer. You're not saved by just simply saying, I let Jesus into my heart. Those are not scriptural ways in which God speaks to how we can become saved. But you can be baptized into Christ in a beautiful display of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's how your sins are washed away. And that is the truth. And I hope you have accepted it in love. If you need to obey the gospel tonight, I want you to come as we stand and sing.